I would like to begin with a quote from C.S. Lewis before we uh, come to our text. God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than any other slackers. If you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. And one of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education in itself. Now, the purpose of me quoting this is not to say, oh, we as Christians, we're smart too. We're intellectual. Because you see, that would be the epitome of pride, wouldn't it? As though we come to heaven because we're smarter than someone else, because we're more intellectual than someone else. Because you see, the scripture says that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. But the reason I thought about this quote is I'm actually going to quote some from Martin Luther, and you're going to have to put your thinking cap on. Because you see, uh, I know I've quoted Jonathan Edwards many times. He said that the, the, the heart of devotion is first entered through the gate of the mind. You know, the reason sometimes our hearts aren't warmed is because we're not clear about who God is and what he has done, what he's accomplished, to sit down maybe on your back porch one night and just go, let me think about the incarnation. And, and all of a sudden you begin to think with your mind and, and your heart is warm by this incredible reality that God came into the world in the person of Christ and, and forever Jesus will be both God and man. And, and if that doesn't every now and then mesmerize you a little bit, then, then you're not thinking. So it's very important that unlike Jesus' brothers that we find in our text, or unlike the crowd at the Feast of Booth that were fuzzy, because they kind of saw but they didn't see. And I know this tends to be a theme that we talk a lot about, don't we, at Redeemer? But it tends to be what Jesus is saying throughout the Gospels. Speaking in parables, so that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not hear, lest you think that seeing is why you believe, versus the mercy and grace of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, I want you to turn to our text that's written here, and the reason we write it down is we have a lot of visitors, and uh, we believe this is the very inerrant word of God, so read with me. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And so his brother said to him, Leave here, go up to Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. 
The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, he, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly. And this is God's word. He wants to teach us from his word. He wants to encourage, challenge us, but encourage us in his word. And his word is living and active. So let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Father, we thank you for your presence. You've called us to worship. We have sung praises to you. We have confessed our faith together as believers, part of the historic faith. We've confessed our sins. And now, Lord, we come open-handed to you and ask that you would fill mouths this morning that are hungry and thirsty for hope. For the true Jesus, the one who reigns over the heavens and the earth and is one day coming again and all things will be made new. So Lord, we pray that everyone who's here would see Jesus. And I ask it in your name. Amen. Uh, most of you, I have heard the saying, almost counts in horseshoes and hair grenades. You ever heard that saying? Yeah. The literal meaning of the saying is derived from the fact that, that you can actually win points uh, in horseshoes if you don't make a ringer. If you lean it up, you get a certain amount of points. If you get it kind of closer than the other uh, person, then you get some points, and whoever gets the most points wins. And so the idea is uh, close counts in horseshoes. Uh, same, same thing with, with hand grenades. Right? If you throw a hand grenade near somebody and it explodes, it will still do lethal damage. Now, you know, it's kind of nice to have some things that you don't have to be precise about, especially for me. I tend not to be an overly precise <clears throat> person. But the reality is that in this life, most things have to be precise. In fact, the lack of precision, the lack of precision can cost us dearly. What good is it to say, I almost got that problem right. I almost won a gold medal. Uh, I, came, I came so close to marrying the right person. I almost got into medical school. 
She, she came that close to almost not drowning. What is it good to say these things? We have to be so precise about so many things. Almost winning, it doesn't count, right? I mean, uh, moral victory is not a victory. To make a mistake is a mistake even if you didn't want to make the mistake. Uh, Once something is said, even though you almost didn't say that thing about someone, doesn't mean that that person has not been deeply affected by the thing that you said versus the thing that you almost did not say. I can give you all kinds of examples about the importance of precision in this life. Matter of fact, the older you get, the more you realize that. Now, friends, let me tell you something. Uh, we cannot be this way when it comes to things eternal. Now, if you have to be precise about your taxes, if you have to be precise about what your professor expects from you in a class, uh, and a whole host of other things, how much more those things are eternal? We only live in this life for a very short time, and we spend a lot of time, and I think rightly so, going, I need to make sure that these things are right so that The investment I make won't affect my children, won't affect my grandchildren, won't affect my wife. I need to make sure that I'm doing my taxes right. I need to make sure that I'm on time because almost being on time sometimes is not the way to go. And so it's very important that we're precise about the gospel. And to be precise about the gospel, because we hear that word. Have you ever heard the word gospel? Anybody not heard the word gospel? You have to be precise about who God is. Not who we think he is. Not who we hope he is. We cannot say God is so and so any more than you can say the sky is black. We need to be precise about what the scripture says about God. That he is like the hymn that we sang. He's infinite, eternal, eternal, and unchangeable. And we're not. And until we understand who God is, we can't understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ is because they go hand in hand because one thing that you don't want to happen one day is when you die and stand before God that you are almost saved. That you almost believed. Man, I thought I had it. And yet, the Lord says, I I never knew you because you never really knew me. So precision is an important thing this morning. Now, before I give you the points, let me ask you this question. I think it's the most important question you can be asked. I've asked it before here at Redeemer. I am a minister of the gospel, and ultimately, no matter what I teach and what I might want to share about uh, the book of Job or, or whatever it may be, the bottom line, the question is always, am I saved? Am I absolutely clear in my understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for me? I'm not asking you whether you feel like it. 
But I'm asking, are you putting your faith and a whole lot of other ideas are out there? Are you establishing your faith upon the confession that we read this morning, the Nicene Creed? You don't want to be wrong about the gospel. And so here there's three things that we're going to look at uh, this morning before we come to the Lord's table. We're going to see the imprecision of his half-brothers. These were actually his brothers. And then we're going to see the imprecision of the multitudes concerning Jesus and what it kind of leads to when you're not precise. Because both had an opinion about who Jesus is. And then we need to see how Jesus was absolutely precise in what he thought about God and what he thought about himself and what that led him to 2,000 years ago, to death on a cross. So the first thing to see is this. uh, The imprecision of his own brothers concerning Jesus. Now, you know, as as I come to... I debated on doing this. But as we come to this first point, um, I I wanted to read what Luther uh, had to say about the clarity of the gospel. Uh, Because it's probably the best thing I've ever read that it so precisely states what it is. Uh, And I don't know how much I'm supposed to read. You know, when you start reading, especially in our day and age, people go roll their heads. And there it is. Y'all mind if I read something to you about what Martin Luther says about the gospel? I, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's, the, it's the clearest thing I've ever heard or read. And it's his preface to the book of Galatians. Because the first book that Paul wrote was Galatians, and people were becoming very imprecise about the gospel. Yes, Jesus died, but yet to be circumcised. Yes, Jesus died, but you have to be baptized in the Presbyterian Church, Church of Christ, this, that, and the other. Yes, Jesus died, but you can't smoke, drink, dance, or chew. And so, the, so Martin Luther, is, is, in his prophets, is wanting us to understand the true gospel. And as I read this, he talks about an active and a passive righteousness. And most of us think in terms of active righteousness, doing the right things, being good fathers, being good husbands, being good mothers, being good citizens. And that's where we spend our attention, our time, rather than the passive righteousness that Martin Luther will explain. Martin Luther says this, Paul's argument is this, he wants to establish the doctrine of faith. Grace, the forgiveness of sins, or Christian righteousness. So that we may have a perfect knowledge and know the difference between Christian righteousness and all other, else, all other kinds of righteousness. So, so, so this morning, you, you either have a true Christian righteousness that he'll explain, or you have the other kind, whatever it may be. For righteousness is of many kinds. Now listen to what he says. There is a political righteousness, which the emperor and the princes of the world, philosophers and lawyers consider. I mean, do you not see a lot of righteousness whether you're in the right party or not? 
Uh, if you're not seeing that, well, this is immoral if you don't believe X, Y, and Z, whatever this party believes. So there's that. But then there's also a ceremonial righteousness. Like maybe you're coming here to Redeemer and you're taking the sacraments and you're coming to church and you go to the Catholic church or you go to the Baptist church. And so you seek to establish a righteousness that has nothing to do with Christian righteousness but is basically the husk of the gospel. Parents and teachers may teach this righteousness without danger because they do not attribute to it any power to make satisfaction for sin, to placate God and to earn grace. But they teach that these ceremonies are necessary only for moral discipline and for certain observance. This in addition to to these Yet another righteousness, the righteousness of the law, the righteousness of Moses, the Ten Commandments, is also a righteousness that is not a faith. The law of Moses. Now over and above all these, there is a righteousness of faith or a Christian righteousness which is to be distinguished most carefully and precisely from all others. For they are contrary to this righteousness, both because they proceed from the laws of emperors and the traditions of men and the commandments of God and can be achieved by pure human endowments. You understand that? Well, I'm going to be a good dad. Bye, George. Watch me, kids. And then, you know, after 20 years, you realize that, you know what, dad, you weren't so great. And so what we do and what many of you are doing, I have no doubt in my my mind that many of you are miserable and unhappy because you are seeking an active righteousness. A righteousness that you must do to to be a good dad, to be a good uh, uh, parent, to a a son or daughter, to aging parents, uh, to be a, a, a good team mom. You just name it. And so the traditions of men that the, the church, apart from the scriptures, begins to put on you. Now, I'll tell you, as your pastor, the last thing I want for you is when you hear me preach the law of God to in any way suggest to you that I'm telling you to get your act together. The purpose of the law of God, which supersedes the traditions of men that keep us from doing what the law says, and that is to kill us. You got it? Martin Luther is saying that you are today either united to Adam in all his sin, and you're seeking to establish a standing before God and a standing before others that you cannot establish because that covenant is already broken. So Martin Luther goes further. And he says what we need and what everybody in this room needs. You need righteousness. Because you see, if God is God, not according to your fancy, but the way Jesus understood the Father and came into the world, then you would understand the absolute vanity of seeking to establish a righteousness of your own. And so God in his mercy has sent Jesus into this world to live the life we don't live, to do all the active obedience. I'm just, please listen to me. 
Because God demands, because he's God, that everyone in this room, everyone is absolutely perfect in his eyes. And the reason I say that is because the Bible says that, but common sense tells you that if God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and he is worthy of our praise, then he is absolutely holy, righteous, and just. And when you stand before him in your own active righteousness, he will be fair. Now, is that what you want to stand in? You see, that is the other righteousness that's not Christian righteousness. And so Martin Luther speaks of Christian righteousness as being passive. I'm not reading anymore, okay? I'm just going to tell you what he said. Me and Luther, we're like that. Even though I'm a Presbyterian, I like Luther. Martin Luther said this. There's, there's nothing we can do. We're already dead in Adam. Christ comes into the world to do what we don't do, what he didn't do. So that he might present himself before the Father. And he was the true Israelite. Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you are without excuse saying, well, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as that guy on the third row. Because you see, Jesus did come as a human being and he learned obedience as a man. But the passive obedience is two things. Not only did he live the life that we can't live, but when he went to the cross, our sin was imputed to him. To who? To those who trust in him by faith. And his righteousness is passive in this sense, that he set himself upon the cross to be condemned in our place. And so now where are we to be this morning? Let me tell you where you need to be before I come to our text. You need to rest completely in the fact that sins are buried, that Christ sits at the right hand of God, and all the righteousness that you will ever need, no matter how despicable you've been this week or will be next week, sits at the right hand of God. He has been made unto us righteousness. Now, now before I talk about how confused his brothers are, because I don't want you to be confused. Let me ask this congregation. If that is true, and you don't have to establish a righteousness of your own. Number one, is there any boasting? Can anybody here go, hey, man, I'm a pretty decent Christian. I would say this, if you don't think you're the chief of sinners in this room, I doubt very seriously that you begin to understand the love of God in Jesus Christ. So there's no boasting. But not only that, it should free you up to serve others because you see, you're already united to Christ. Todd, I think you said you talked about that in Sunday school class, didn't you? So with union with Christ by the Spirit then all the benefits of the resurrection of Christ are all, to all who believe this morning and have put their faith and trust in him. Let me ask you that. If you struggle with pornography, or if you struggle with being a liar, if you struggle with uh, being dishonest, if you struggle with fear, if you struggle with, I just don't like that person, is that good news? Because chances are you're going to struggle with it tomorrow, aren't you? Martin Luther, and I quit on this, and, 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 and just look a little bit in our text. Martin Luther says this. 
that the whole Christian faith stands or falls upon whether that doctrine is preached. And that is the doctrine we preach at Redeemer. This is the gospel of grace that God in his mercy will make you new. If you are very clear and precise in your thinking concerning the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you what, his brothers didn't get it. And the crowd didn't get it. So, so in the, just the, the 15 minutes or so that we have left. Let's, just, let's, let's look at this. Number one, look at their imprecision of his brothers concerning Jesus. Notice it says... Now the Jews, verse 2, now the Jews, the feast of booth was at hand. And so his brother said to him, leave here and go on up to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then notice what it says in verse 5. For even his brothers didn't believe him. Now what in the world does that mean? Why does John say that? What does that got any connector with what he said before? Because he kind of saw it. Well, let me give you the context. Uh, you know, it says after these things, uh, six months after what John, uh, not John, uh, Todd, Todd. Todd preached last week, John 6. Jesus had given his first discourse on the I Am passages of I Am the Bread of Life. Remember that? And then, boy, there were, five, there were thousands of people that after he fed them, they said, man, this guy is greater than Moses. This guy is the Messiah. We want him to be our king. Right? And so Jesus was, well, that's great. But I think that you want me for the bread that I give. That I, that I, that I did, right? Like, like I believe in Jesus as long as my rent gets paid. How about that? And so after he began to say, listen, unless you eat my drink, flesh and drink my fl- blood, in other, wor- in other words, unless you're absolutely, I am in you and you in me, you have no life. Wow. So you know what? After he kept saying, unless you eat my drink, uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. And I'm telling you, the whole crowd went away. And of course he turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to go away? And they're like... Well, where else will we go? You ever thought about that as a Christian? Man, I, what good is it to me to be a Christian? I mean, but I, but I, can't, I cannot leave you, Jesus, because I don't understand you. I don't understand what you're doing in my life. But I know that you are you. And I can't go away. Well, after that, six months has passed. In fact, if you want to know how to understand the, the, the Gospels, go read the synoptics, and it will mostly tell you about the six months when Jesus was ministering in a place called Galilee. So he's ministering six months later. Now, here's what his brothers are saying. His brothers are saying, why do you, why you want to be up here in Hicktown? Why are you up in there Galilee with all the rednecks? Is that okay to say redneck? I mean... I'm sure there are none here today but me. And I mean, why, why are you sitting here in Royston, Georgia, when you, you, need, to go on to the, the, you need to go on up to Washington, D.C., and you need to make yourself known? So that's kind of the context, this here. 
And so Jesus' brothers, in a way, because they didn't understand precisely who he was, they were kind of saying this to Jesus. Listen, I'll tell you what. You be the religious leader, you be the king, and you be all that stuff that, you know, rabbis are supposed to be, and we're going to be your campaign managers. Right? And uh, because we, we've got it figured out as to why you're here. And uh, you're going to restore Israel. Stuff we've talked about many, many times. Right? They, want to, they want their stuff here. Do you understand that? Now, can I make application of that for just a moment? Do you want a Jesus that meets the needs according to what you think your needs are? Or has it become precisely clear that your greatest need is the forgiveness of sins, not a boyfriend or a wife or more children or to be a grandparent or to, you know, just fill in the blank. That's what they're thinking. Now, I want you to see what John says about them. Uh, John tells us that, you know, it's because they, they still hadn't believed. Now, what does he mean by that? They're his half-brothers. They, <laughs> they watched them grow up. They saw him do the miracles. They believed. But John says they didn't believe. And let me tell you what John means by that. John's saying... They didn't believe the same way I didn't believe at that time. Because you see, John and all the rest, they departed. They, they left Jesus, right? They were completely running away. Until, even though Jesus had done all the miracles. I mean, you ever thought, if I could just be with Jesus for those three years, I would believe. What about Judas? I mean, he had the best small group leader the world has ever known. Hey, Jesus, what are we doing for small group tonight? Now, let's uh, open up to Isaiah. In the meantime, uh, let me make a, do a little miracle or two here. You see, the reason you don't submit your life is C.S. Lewis saying, with your whole brain and your whole being and being educated in the gospel and it just mesmerizes you intellectually is because you're not ultimately submitting to who he really is. Now, I'm not trying to be negative. You understand? But I'm speaking to some of y'all that you know what I'm talking about. That's what he says. But here's what's interesting to Jesus. Uh, What what does Jesus say to his brothers? They're like, hey, men, going up to the feast. Don't be over here hiding yourself. Make yourself known to the world. Let's have a campaign so we can get the momentum going back because we should benefit if we're your brothers, based on what we think, what does he say to them? He says two very interesting things. First off, he tells them, um, he says, well, you know, uh, I'm going to note here, yeah. Here's what he says. Uh, your timing is always. You tell me going up. Oh, sure. I'll go on up. But you see, your time is always not my time. You know what he meant by that? Jesus knew that in six months, and if you go look at the book of Daniel and the absolute prediction where Daniel almost, it's almost to the day he dies, but Jesus is going, if I go now, they'll kill me. And it's not time for me to be killed. Now, he didn't tell them that, but he knows that. 
But you see, Jesus says, your time, and we like the, the brother, our time's always. You want to go to the ball game? Go. Uh, yeah, maybe I ought to help with the youth group. But you know what? I really, uh, I, I'd like to save my, save my weekends for, uh, for my mountain house. Which, by the way, I have one. Okay? In case you feel guilty about that. I have a mountain house. Um, but let me tell you what Jesus is saying. I want you to think about this for a minute. He's saying that most of our time... Because it's at a horizontal level and we don't see this incredible big plan of God is irrelevant. I mean, think about it. Look, pull out your t- day timer. Pull out, well, day timer. You know, go back to your calendar when you go. Just say, okay, what did I do this past week? What did I do this weekend? What did I do that suggests I'm on the same mindset as Jesus who understood that his time is his father's hands? Now, what's the other thing they said? He said to him, he said, well, <laughs> but the war. So your time is your time, right? But then he says, it's always your time. I mean, he says, he says, I'm sorry. The world doesn't hate you. It hates me. And the reason I can't go yet is it's not Passover six months from now. And if I go in the great big crowd, they're going to seek me out. And they're going to kill me. Now, easy application here, I think. I really do believe that Jesus said, if you're my disciples, because you're on his time, and all of a sudden you're not just doing what you want to do. And when I say that, I don't think you do it perfectly, but should should the Christian wake up every day and say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Should you? But you see, the more you're getting tracking on his time, and the more you begin to spend uh, time with him, and, and, and the image of Christ is being born in you, then the same reason that it hated Jesus will be the reason that they begin to not invite you to things. Because why was it they hated Jesus? Because his life exposes all of us for the sham that we are. His life is light. But you see, he didn't come into this world to condemn us because he told Nicodemus it's already condemned. Yeah, Jesus, you go right on up there. Make yourself known. And he said, yeah, right, they'll kill me. So they didn't get it. So they weren't precise about him. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? You, you have to be precise about who he is. And then notice that the, the crowds... The imprecision of the multitude. Uh, look real quick at verse 10. If you look it down at 10, it's very interesting what it says about the crowd. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. And some said, Oh, he's a good man. And others said, no, he's leading the people astray. And then verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. You know, it's very interesting. You notice how the crowds are wanting to, hey, hey where is he? That's kind of like, it's, where's the rock concert going to be? When's the rock star getting here? When is the, the, you know, the famous preacher getting here? When's the guy doing all the miracles? When's, when's the showman getting here? They're seeking him, right? Does it say that in that text? Hey, what, what's, 
We're very interested in Jesus. But you know what's interesting? Jesus ain't seeking them. He's not going, hey, I need a crowd. I need to, I need, I need to, be, uh, I need to be your king. Now, I'll tell you what. If there's one thing I don't ever want to do at Redeemer, I, I don't want to seek the crowd out. I, don't get me wrong. I want everybody to know Jesus. I'm an evangelist. I want people to know Christ. That's why we started this church. But the moment we begin to do things just to get people to come for the sake of filling up our seats is the moment we will not be like Jesus who is not concerned about the crowd other than dying for them and giving them hope. So what would the crowd say? Two kinds of people reacting to Jesus. And then they both end up doing the same thing. The first, what's the first group? Oh, he's a good man. Like the coach that says, oh, yeah, man, the good man upstairs was with us last night. He was a, he was a Georgia Bulldog, not a Mississippi State Bulldog. Sorry for Mississippi State people. I see some in here. He's a good man upstairs, okay? But other people, hey, he's good. He heals the sick. He does wonderful things. How many of you think that about Jesus? Man, I got nothing against him. I just don't like Christians because he's a good man. But you see, he's not, let me tell you this. I don't know if you're a Christian here today. I don't know if you're examining the faith. The Bible's very clear. And John says it in John, the prologue, 1 through 18. It doesn't say he's the good man. He is the God man. And as long as you think he's the good man upstairs, or you don't think that Jesus Christ is watching every single thing that you do, that he's not Lord of creation and knows every atom and molecule in the universe, then you know what? You're not precise in your thinking about Jesus. And when you wake up every day and you don't spend any time in the Word, you don't spend any time in prayer, and you're just going out there and say, yeah, I love Jesus Christ, but you're never, ever going, what do you want me to do today? Then you think he's the good man. He, yeah, of course he doesn't mind if you don't spend time with him. But as God, in human form, our passive righteousness sitting at the right hand of God, who's made all things new for you and beckons us by faith to come to him. Now, what do the other people say? He's a deceiver. He's just deceiving everybody. For crying out loud, this guy's saying things like, I'm the bread of life. He's a weird guy. Now, I don't know if you're a Christian or not. Maybe you just kind of, you don't know where you are in all this stuff. But maybe some of you have very hard-hearted toward the gospel. And you think that anybody that preaches this gospel is deceiving the people. Because he himself was a deceiver. Let me say one thing about this. And then I've got to come to my last point when we come to communion. I've told Matt uh, Seiple, who's not 40 yet. You're not 40 yet, are you? He's one of our pastors, excuse me. And Rob Herring, the guy with the dark jeans that was up here, he's an ordained minister, very great theologian, as is Matt. Todd's a little older, who is helping. I'm 62. But I've been telling these younger men, there are two things you better be as a minister coming up now. Number one, you better know your stuff, right? Have I told you that? You better not only know your theology, but liberal theology. You better know philosophy. You better read the culture. Because I'm telling you, our culture is beginning to move toward Christians who believe certain things do not belong in the public sphere. Now, I'm not doing the culture war thing. Okay, please. 
because I, I, I'm not into that. But I'll tell you this. I just heard recently, uh, this morning, that I think it's in England where if, well, I won't say England. There is a country that's saying, hey, if parents are Christians, if they're Christians, they believe all this God and Jesus and blood and sacrifices, they cannot adopt. Do you think that's not coming? Now, how does the crowd respond? And I want you to think about this. Have you made your mind up? Because it says they muttered about him. Good or bad. And then it says, they kept quiet. Because of fear. How about you? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, say, and don't, please don't say, well, he was an apostle. Please don't say that. He's given us his stuff so that we might bear the image of Christ, not the Apostle Paul. He says, or let me give you Jeremiah, I, I could not keep silent because the truth burned in my bones. Or you just got, do you mutter about it? Well, I believe in you. Yeah, you know, uh, Tom, Bob, Susan, Jane, they're, they're decent people. Or are you no longer muttering, but when it's crystal clear that you want, you want to invite your neighbors over? You want to come to your small group? Hey, go to Redeemer. How many of y'all invite people to Redeemer? I think I'm preaching the gospel. Why, why do we remain muted? Fear. You know why you're fearful? Because you're not precise in your thinking about who Christ is. One last thing. Jesus was real clear and precise about the Father in heaven. Thus why he came on this planet. And why he was absolutely locked in. That though he was misunderstood. Though once he reveals himself six months later. He knew he would be crucified. I'll tell you why, whether you believe this or not. It's because he knows that the only way that you will not experience the judgment of God because of who God is, is if he enters in on your behalf. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Does that move you? I am in Christ. I'm united to him. I am new. Well, then you know, your beginning faith is beginning to grow. But you see, Jesus Christ, because he was clear, loved us so much he came into the world. You understand that? For you. Now let me ask, did he come in the world for them or us? Or the world? Or has the Holy Spirit convinced you this morning that he has come into the world for you? Because he loves you. He knows we don't know. He knows we're stupid. I'm stupid. If I really understood all this completely, I would never sin. But I do. But you see, I don't tell you what I do believe. That he never sinned on my behalf. And he loves me. And that love will free you up to serve him. Not be self-righteous, moralistic, hating God and hating people because you, have to, you can't dance. Yeah, I, you can dance in my view, but you know what I'm saying. So, would you come to Christ today if you never repented of your sin? I mean, I'm telling you, God will be precise 
against your sins if they're not in Christ. And Jesus knew that and died for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, We pray now as we come to the Lord's table. Lord, that you would work in our lives. I pray for any who are here, uh, Lord, that, that, that they sense you tugging at their heart. Lord, would they not harden? But today, would today be the day of their salvation? That they would repent of their sin and come to Christ, the love of their soul. And may the goodness and kindness of Christ and God the Father bring them to repentance. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Those that help me communion, come forward. Rob's going to help me with communion.